this is what a Dalek sounds like. Um, you may not know what a Dalek is. Uh, that's one. <laughs> uh, we'll be looking at them more. <laughs> uh, okay, well, it's lovely to be back with you again and to be uh, looking at, at a more sort of... Uh, worked example of cultural analysis. Um, I'm quite a science fiction fan, and uh, Doctor Who is a program that I'm a, a fan of. It's uh, the longest running science fiction program in the world. Uh, it started uh, in 1963 uh, in England uh, on the same day that uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in America, and C.S. Lewis died and Aldous Huxley died um, and Doctor Who started so it was uh, an interesting day that day um, the programme ran from 63 and it ran continuously until uh, I think 1989 in England um, and it went through um, various phases of, of more or less uh, popularity but then in 2005 um, a generation of TV executives who had watched Doctor Who as children uh, got into positions of uh, power within the industry and wanted to bring back their beloved program for a new generation and so Doctor Who came back in 2005 um, with a much bigger budget and um, better writers I think it has to be said uh, and uh, sets that uh, didn't wobble like the old sets used to quite a lot uh, and so on and uh, watching Doctor Who you get that, a history of the way in which television has been made uh, from the black and white days of, of 63 by the BBC and changes in the, the technology and the special effects technology and so on and we will um, see some clips from, from old Doctor Who uh, and, uh, but I will also be showing various clips from the, the new uh, version of Doctor Who. Um, to give you the, the setup of the program, it was a very ingenious um, kind of plot device that they have. It's about a, uh, an alien time traveller who just goes by the name The Doctor. I don't know what his name is, but he's just The Doctor. And um, one of the very interesting things about The Doctor is that when he uh, dies, he comes back to life but in a different body, with a different body. His body changes and his personality changes somewhat, um, but he's still the same person. This means that your actor, your lead actor, can change. You can have a, a lead actor for two or three or four years, or whatever, and then he can get fed up with the job and want to move on to other things, and another lead actor takes over the role. But you still have the same character carrying through which is one of the things that's given the series such a, a longevity and the other is the fact that uh, this alien is a time traveller he's got a time machine he can go anywhere in space or time and often in parallel universes as well which means you can set your story and they tend to have uh, these days stories that are sort of one or two episodes long you can set your story anywhere in space or time so you can do uh, a period historical drama in Elizabethan times and get out all the Elizabethan costumes and props and things from the BBC prop department and next week you might be on planet Zog fighting space aliens uh, and the following week you're uh, back in Cromwell's time in England or so the story's uh, format is very flexible but what stays constant is the fact that there's the Doctor and his time machine, the TARDIS, 
and he usually has some companions, usually human companions, so that we get a, a viewer's eye uh, view of what's going on. And the doctor fights against evil. He's a good guy. He blunders into some situation where something evil's going on. He finds out about it, and he puts a stop to it. That's what he does. Uh, and his most famous uh, monster opponent uh, are these creatures called Daleks. There's uh, an organic alien creature inside them in this sort of uh, mechanical travel machine. Um, and we'll see something about the, the origins and the development and the way in which Daleks are used uh, in the story. Um, I'm going to say in the first part of what I do something about uh, monsters in general... I mean, Doctor Who and used the, the Daleks in Doctor Who as a particular example of monsters and what they tell us. And then I'll look more uh, in the second half at the character of the Doctor uh, and the analogies, the parallels and disanalogies, things that are different between the character of the Doctor in Doctor Who and the Christ in Christianity. Because you'll, you'll see, actually, the Doctor is, in very many ways, uh, a Christ-like figure within this story. Even though it's... Um, the the writer who, and producer who brought back Doctor Who in 2005 is an atheist writer called Russell T. Davis, um, but he's an atheist who says that humans are um, religious creatures, and he's drawn very much on religious imagery and so on in this character, and there's a long tradition in Doctor Who of associating various Christian imagery and um, sort of uh, character points with the Doctor, even though the Doctor himself tends to put forward a very sort of narrowly scientific view of the world historically, although that's something that's begun to be questioned within the show itself of, of recent. So he's a sort of secular messiah figure in a way, which I, I think is very interesting. Let's start off by thinking about the psychology of monsters. Uh, monster in English is a word with, with roots in, in the Latin language. Uh, in Latin words like monstrum, which means that which teaches. Monstrere, to show. Or monere, to warn. This theme of teaching and showing and warning is obvious from the English word demonstrate. Uh, like a science teacher might demonstrate an experiment to the science class to show them what happens uh, when you do, you know, pouring liquid A into liquid B. Uh, and monsters, as a sort of literary and cultural uh, product, are, I think, ways for humans to confront real or possible evils in a safe way. It's a way for us to think about evil and things that frighten us uh, without actually being uh, threatened. And this is what I call William's Law of Monstrousness, as a bit of a joke. Um, but I think it holds true. That the more monstrous the evil and the more successfully a monster symbolises that evil, the scarier the monster is. Um, it might be a fun exercise just to think of classic monsters, screen monsters from horror films or sci-fi aliens or whatever, and, and think that the scariest 
screen monsters are the ones that symbolize the things that we're most frightened of or that are most evil or that symbolize them really well. Um, I've done this uh, talk both with uh, Doctor Who fans at a Doctor Who convention uh, and uh, with students at the Oxford uh, Centre for Christian Apologetics. Um, and when I did it with the fans, I did this exercise where I had various different monsters that are featured in Doctor Who and get them to rank them from are they just mildly scary monsters through to are they terrifying monsters and then to get them to think about, well, what do those monsters symbolize? Um, but you won't know about these particular monsters, so we'll, we'll skip over that and I'll tell you about the, the Daleks which are universally agreed by those who watch the show they're a classic monster who kept returning they were the monster that in the second story that Doctor Who had in 63 really made the show popular and made the viewing figures really shoot up and thereafter if the, if the viewing figures are ever going down they wheel out quite literally wheel out the Daleks and the viewing figures go up so uh, a monster is it's a human invention that warns us about our own capacity for evil as well. It demonstrates, therefore, our need to be saved from ourselves because a lot of monsters, the evil that they're symbolising is something about us. And this is true of the Daleks in particular. And stories like Doctor Who, wherein monsters are regularly defeated, they're confronted and then defeated. Uh, in literary criticism that's called a drama of reassurance. We confront that evil in this fictional world and we're comforted by the fact that the evil is defeated. And there's something there that resonates, I think, with the feeling that we have as humans that we want to be safe, of course, the feeling that we want to have the evil, although it's real, can be defeated. And there's obviously something there that, that chimes with the Christian worldview uh, that says that evil is real, but it can and will be defeated. Um, so I might skip over one of my examples here, but let me just give you a couple of examples of, uh, as it were, taking core samples at different stages in the history of this program and how they've used Daleks. The fundamental thing about a Dalek, the thing that it fundamentally represents, is a hatred of anything that's different from yourself. Daleks are basically fascists. They're Nazis. Um, you can see here a picture from the second Dalek story in the 60s, in which the Daleks invade Earth. And here is a Dalek, basically with one of its uh, <laughs> appendages, doing a Nazi salute um, by... Uh, in Trafalgar Square in the heart of London um, and this is of course not very long uh, in the 60s not very long after World War II and a generation of people who'd lived under the threat of invasion by Nazis uh, so in this story it's really like well what if the Nazis had invaded London but here are Nazis or the Daleks yeah. um, so they, they, they represent a hatred of difference and this disease as it were remains constant throughout throughout the history of their use in the story but the, the particular symptoms changed with the times as the writers often very very cleverly shape the way in which they present the Daleks to, to, to chime in to, to resonate with things that people are fearful of in culture at the time 
So, come back with me in the TARDIS. It looks like a British police box from the 1960s when pe- policemen didn't have uh, mobile phones or walkie-talkies. Um, there were these uh, wooden boxes distributed around the country that looked uh, like this, blue boxes that had a telephone in them for police use or for the public to be able to call the police in an emergency and also if if a policeman caught a burglar or something they could lock them inside this box as a little temporary prison uh, until uh, they could call a van from HQ to come and take them away so they were sort of a combination of prison and an emergency help centre which which is an interesting symbol of what the doctor does he comes into a situation he confronts evil he defeats it uh, he's like the uh, intergalactic emergency services, the police, you know, stopping evildoers and so on. Um, his time machine is, is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So there's a lot of room in that box, which always surprises people when they first come in and they kind of go, good grief, you know, it's bigger on the inside than the outside. How do you do that? It's never really explained. Alien technology. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's meant to be able to change its outside appearance to blend in with its surroundings as a disguise. But the doctor's machine is a bit of an old machine, a bit, cr- bit crotchety, a bit cronky, and it doesn't really work, and it's got stuck in this shape of a police box, which saves a lot of money having to have a new prop every time it goes somewhere different. <laughs> so, here we are. 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world came perhaps as close as it ever has to a nuclear war. Uh, My mum can remember being in school in England and going through drills of hiding under the desk in school in case there was a a nuclear air raid uh, warning sounded. I'm sure the desk would have been great protection against a nuclear nuclear bomb, but at least they felt they were doing something. Uh, In 1963, Doctor Who starts, um, first Doctor played by William Hartnell, and in the second story they introduce the Daleks. And in this story it starts off with the Doctor and his uh, companions, uh, who are a couple of teachers from school, who uh, blundered into his TARDIS when they followed um, one of their pupils back to her home in a junkyard, uh, which uh, turned out to be this TARDIS. And uh, they land on this desolate planet where all the, all the trees and the plant life are kind of petrified and just dead. And they find an apparently empty city and decide to go and explore so here is uh, a clip uh, from that episode when we get the, the first proper reveal of the dialects at the end of this clip. But you'll see very much the context about fear of nuclear weapons. A few things uh, about that. You, you can see that the Doctor, at the beginning of the show, although he ends up, he always does the right thing in the end, he's a bit sort of a crotchety old man and not particularly heroic as a character. But that very quickly changed... Uh, and he becomes a, a much more heroic, sort of morally, clearly good character who goes around doing the right thing. Uh, the Dalek design was a, a very uh, clever breakthrough design for an alien. It, these are probably the first aliens that you've seen in a film or a television that aren't a man in a suit, that isn't human-shaped, someone dressed up in tinfoil and cardboard rolls, or uh, a, a swimming suit and a mask. They're not 
they're not as tall as a human there's nothing sort of human about them they're operated by someone sitting inside them operating the the plunger and the the head and the the lights (laughs) off a Ford Anglia when they're talking and so on Um, so they didn't have a lot of money to spend on them but it was a revolutionary design and this was kind of like good grief an alien that's not humanoid being represented on on TV so it was in that sense a very clever uh, design that became very popular so here Daleks are used to represent the dangers of nuclear war what they discover that's actually happened to the Daleks is that the people who lived on this planet have had a a nuclear war and one uh, type of person on the planet has mutated because of the nuclear war that's been going on for so long and they've become these little uh, gangly creatures that, that can't survive outside of these sort of life support war machines that they've built for themselves so, another little uh, jump back, well, forward in time from, from there. Uh, and partly because of the dangers of a threat of nuclear war, uh, the sort of enthusiasm that people had for science in the 1950s uh, began to wane a little bit, to, to die down, as people saw that, that science, by giving us so much power, brought dangers with it, as well as great opportunities for changing the world. And there were uh, a series of books, I've listed some of them here uh, in this time up to the the mid-1970s, warning about the dangers of science and how we need to uh, very carefully handle uh, the power that we get through science. Um, And sort of the the idea of the the scientist goes from a very heroic figure, as they're often portrayed in sort of 50s sci-fi films, and then you get the the rise of portraying scientists much more as kind of the mad scientist who's so obsessed with his work that he's going to do something terrible and has to be stopped. Well, in a, a particularly famous Doctor Who story called The Genesis of the Daleks from 1975, uh, and this is the Doctor here now played by a guy called Tom Baker, he's sent back by his race, the Time Lords, to the birth of the Daleks. And he meets uh, this chap, uh, Davros, uh, uh, a Khaled scientist. You'll notice the anagram. The Khaleds became the Daleks, um, who is the guy who invented the travel machines um, for the Khaleds who were mutating uh, into the Daleks. And actually, we discover that he interfered with their mutation process because he was obsessed with survival. Uh, and everyone is going around in this story wearing, wearing uniforms that are the clearly sort of German World War II uniforms and saluting all over the place and the, the fascist parallels are still very much there but there's also this, this theme of, of the mad scientist and I'm going to show you a, a, a scene where Davros who's uh, captured the Doctor he often gets captured by the bad guys before he defeats them just like James Bond um, and they're having a chat about the ethics the morality of what Davros is doing um, clearly a mad scientist who needs to be stopped and he's talking about playing, playing God uh, a power will set me up above the gods and I think this is the scriptwriters fitting in with the, the feelings of the time and some of the objections against science and is science playing God with the world and so on so here they're now representing the, the dangers of science without morality Um, of playing God and so on I think I will probably skip over the next illustration 
uh, about genetic engineering, fears about genetic engineering. Basically, the uh, Davros, as the actor in a tea break, um, <laughs> uh, gets uh, some humans who've been cryogenically frozen in the hopes of uh, being having their diseases cured by the advancement of science and he takes these frozen humans and he's turning them into a new Dalek army uh, for himself um, but we'll skip over that sketch um, so after quite a long break it came back in 2005 and of course you've got to bring back the most historically popular enemy for the, the Doctor now played by Christopher Eccleston in the first series and this is his companion played by Billy Piper and uh, you would to make the Daleks have an impact today you've got to think what is it that, that people are fearful of here and now in 2005 that we can shape the Daleks to represent well the answer is obvious isn't it it's it's religious fundamentalist terrorists so in a story called parting of the waves the end of the first season in 2005 we have a, a mad emperor dalek this time creating a new dalek race uh, the doctor uh, thought he had defeated them we're, we're told and we gradually learn that in the intervening gap between uh, the show going off air and coming back uh, the Time Lords and the Daleks had had a huge time war and the Doctor had fought as a soldier in this war and the only way in which he could stop the Daleks involved also destroying his own race and both the Daleks and the Time Lords had been destroyed in this huge struggle and the Doctor is the only one who survives or so he thinks at least and so he's living with uh, survivor guilt really and there's a very interesting plot arc much more character based drama in the new Doctor Who uh, as he uh, comes to term with his survivor guilt through the series but let me show you a clip uh, where the Doctor and his companions uh, meet the Emperor Dalek and there's a lot of interesting stuff packed into the dialogue here by Russell T Davis the, the scriptwriter, about uh, religion and terrorism and so on so I thought that was a very interesting updating they still hate difference but now they are religious fundamentalists who will tell you to worship their god or they'll kill you uh, very clear uh, parallels and in the script there from Russell Davis talks about the way in which um, the dispossessed, the refugees, the poor, people that the humans don't look after were easy prey for the religious fundamentalists, for getting uh, radicalised, as the term would be. And, and the way in which he's thinking of himself as God because he created new life. Um, and later on, he tried, that Dalek tries to portray the doctor because he's fighting against them and his God, the doctor, is the devil. Uh, he's the devil figure to the Dalek religion. Yes, we, could, mm. we just have a quick look here. Where are you? Yep. In the uh, series. Oh, you have come far. Yes. You have been rushing this morning. We are already on page seven oh. and eight. Yes, are just you? seven. Just okay. about to go on to eight. And hopefully, it helps that you now have this book for what you have been doing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll see you later. Okay. Uh, 
Ah, in between. In Thank you. The boom time. Yeah. When you're not when you're not using the sound, Great. it's good. But that is the point. Okay. Maybe Thank you. Right. So then, uh, in, in a sense, I'm I'm both showing you my talk and showing you my some of my workings uh, behind uh, this because it's something I've done both with, with uh, mixed and Christian non- non-Christian audience and Christian audiences as well. So having done that analysis of what monsters mean and Daleks, what they mean, how they're shaped by the writers at different in different historical backgrounds, which is in a, a sense establishing that I really understand what I'm talking about. Here, and, you know, showing them the fact that I've co-written a book on the topic, showing them that I understand the history of the show, um, that I understand the, the symbology of what's going on, and so on, giving them some intellectual tools for understanding that themselves, um, which is, in, in a sense, like Paul in Athens convincing the Greeks that he really understood what they were interested in, their culture. I would then draw out for. Uh, lessons about evil, the nature of evil, that the Daleks tell us. The first is that evil's real. I don't think that anybody sits down watching Doctor Who being engaged by that drama, thinking like a moral relativist, someone who thinks that, that moral values are just subjective, that they're, they're just things that differ from person to person and culture to, to culture, and when people disagree about what's right and wrong, it's not that anyone's wrong, it's just that they're, they're different. It's just like, I like Pepsi-Cola, you like Coca-Cola. Well, we're not really disagreeing with each other, we're just saying uh, we prefer different things. Just a, a factual report about us. We're not making factual claims about reality. But if I say the Holocaust was wrong, and someone else says, no, it was fine, are we just having a difference of opinion or is one of us wrong about that as the moral objectivist would claim well I think people watch the Daleks are engaged by the drama of the Doctor and the Daleks because they're thinking like moral objectivists it brings out this intuition no one is sitting there thinking yes come on Daleks you know because well they, they, they differ from the Doctor in their morality Doctor's got his morality the Daleks have got theirs well I like the Daleks I'm going to cheer for them because it's just different. They're, they're all on the same kind of playing field, same level. You can't say that one's better than the other. No. Everyone is cheering, waiting for that moment when the Doctor will, will give the just desserts to the evil Daleks. So this brings out our intuition that evil is real. Secondly, evil's in us. These are monsters. They're symbolic monsters. And what are they symbolising? They're symbolising... Um, fascism, religious terrorism, fundamentalism, hatred of other people just because they're different than we are. Um, these are all things about humanity that are being portrayed here. So that real evil that they're give, bringing out the intuition that's real, it's also telling us that that real evil is in humans. Thirdly, Doctor Who uh, brings out our intuition that evil must be fought. There's a, an obligation on us to take a stand against evil. That's the, the nature of evil. Evil is something that you ought not to do and that you ought to try and reduce. 
You ought to take a stand against evil. And that's what the Doctor does, and that's why people like him as a character. Because he always tries to stand against evil. And fourthly, because this is a drama of reassurance, in which at the end of every story the Doctor wins... Yeah, it might just be a temporary win in the case of monsters that you want to be able to bring back eventually because they're popular but he will always win the battle now there are clear parallels there points that I can affirm as a Christian as being truths that the Bible also affirms according to the Bible evil's real, evil's in us evil must be fought and evil can and will be beaten. So there are points there where I as Christian can say, yeah, those those points line up with the worldview that's being conveyed by this piece of popular culture and the worldview of the Bible. In these instances they line up. Uh, and I would perhaps point an audience towards Revelation twenty one, the verses at the beginning of Revelation twenty one, to show how the the, the Bible uh, portrays the history of reality as it were, as a, as a narrative, as his story, as God's story of reality, uh, which is a drama of reassurance, because at the end of the story of earthly history, evil will be defeated once and for all, and the new heavens and the new earth come. Another little change of topic in a moment. We'll look more at the character of uh, the Doctor, and the Christ and comparing some of the, both the similarities and the dissimilarities but perhaps that would be a good point uh, to stop for some questions or discussion or uh, a loo break if you need one um, I've gone quite quickly through that material so our time's doing well Is this a very popular show in the UK? It is very popular um, the viewing figures are second only to the main soap operas that are watched it, it's regularly in the the high end of the top 10 programs for the week uh, so it has an audience in the millions um, and it's, it's family viewing and always has been as well so it has a kind of crossover appeal from sort of fairly small kids uh, and there's a sort of it, this is often very small children's sort of introduction to television that's a bit scary for them but it's okay because it always ends happily and they can watch it with mum and dad and, and sister and brother and there's something in there for everyone and particularly the new version has brought out much more character drama and a much more sort of soap opera element to the story we get much more contact for example with, with um, his companion Rose that we saw there in the first new series we're introduced to her family and the problems that being a, a co-train traveller with the Doctor brings her and her family Life and the fact that um, the doctor whisks her away uh, and then sort of says, "Well, I can I can take you back home and no one will miss you because I've got a time machine," you know. But he's got an old time machine that doesn't work very well, and he thinks he's got her back on time, but actually she's been a, she's been missing for like a year, and her mum is putting up wanted, you know, have you seen my daughter posters and. Uh, is completely shocked that she's just suddenly turned up out of the blue and this is something that they never did in the old season people would join the doctor and they would usually be sort of orphans or uh, people who had no, you know, no family ties or nothing to sort of miss back earth so uh, the new writer has tied it much more into life here on earth 
sort of comparing and contrasting with life, travelling around space and time with the Doctor, and, and that's sort of bumped up the um, the female audience for the show as well. And he's played much more on um, sort of um, relationships of will the companion fall in love with the Doctor or have an unrequited love for the Doctor um, uh, and what sort of different relationships that he could have in the past um, any sort of hint of, of romance let alone sexual uh, relationships was very much off the agenda for Doctor Who but in New Doctor Who um, partly because of the, um, the interests of the, the main writer that's come very much back onto the agenda um, uh, including um, uh, homosexual relationships, uh, by gender uh, relationships. Uh, it's got a very um, what some people would describe as, as politically correct uh, or liberal or whatever terminology you want to use uh, kind of view of relationships that is this sort of more central to the drama of the show now as well. Uh, so, but again, that's sort of increasing the the audience coverage. In the modern context of, of the show, I think. Yeah. Anything else? We're all on the same page. Is this uh, a bottle of water for me? That's lovely. Well, uh, this guy up here is an actor called David Tennant, who was the second uh, modern doctor, as it were. And I've called this section, uh, somewhat jokingly, Who Will Save Us From Evil? It's a bit of a pun. Um, Both uh, Doctor... um, Sometimes in the old show, he is referred to as Doctor Who, as if Who were his name, or at least the the beginning of his name. But the general rule is um, that we don't know his name, and he's just called The Doctor. Both The Doctor... uh, uh, Doctor Who as a show and the Bible present us with, with reassuring saviour figures, sort of messiah figures. Figures who save humanity from evil and also inspire humans to fight against evil. Um, I'm going to show you a scene from the, the end of that first uh, season uh, where uh, the Doctor, having met the Emperor Dalek, and thinking that he's in a situation where the only way, again, in which he's going to be able to defeat the Daleks and save the majority of humanity is going to be to uh, construct out of um, bits of type string and sealing wax and paper clips some sort of uh, fantastic device that will end up killing everybody, including himself. And he's, of course, prepared to sacrifice himself. But he doesn't want to kill Rose, can't have that on his conscience, so he tricks her to going into the TARDIS and sets the automatic controls to the TARDIS to take her back to Earth, back to her family, back safely into the past. And so here is Rose, suddenly, against her will, stuck back in the past, um, having chips in the local fish and chip shop with her mum and her boyfriend, and thinking of the Doctor now sacrificing his life as she sees it, to save humanity all that uh, time off in the future but for her as she says in this scene it's, that's kind of happening now and she's really frustrated that she apparently can't do anything about it 
Um, she does in the end find a way of doing something about it and actually at the end of the first season it's Rose who saves the Doctor saves humanity from the Daleks but that's because her travels with the Doctor have so transformed her from someone whose life was just consisted consisted of hanging out with her boyfriend at lunchtime, working in the local department store um, watching soap operas on telly eating chips um, but she's now found a new way of life, as she says, fighting evil and making a, uh, a difference in a more significant way in reality because of the influence of the Doctor on her. And off she runs and finds a way to convince the TARDIS, which is actually a sort of semi-living creature, as well as a spaceship, a time machine, <laughs> to take her back to the Doctor and find a way to save him. There's a lot packed into that that scene that one could use. Just using that scene, if people understood the context of the show, I mean things like the way in which when she's kind of evangelising her family mm-hmm. for the the gospel of the living the way of the life the doctor shows you, their uh, reaction from her boyfriend in particular is to say, "You're coming off as if you think you're better than us." You're being all sort of high and and mighty and saying you're better than we are. And she has to kind of say, no, it's it's not that I'm saying I'm better than you. It's that this guy is better than us. And he's inspired me and shown me something that I think is wonderful and more significant than what I had before. And I want you to have that because I love you clear parallels with the way in which a conversation between a Christian and trying to evangelise non-Christians can sometimes go are you, you know, you're saying you're better than us a kind of objection Um, it might be useful to use that kind of clip in in, um, evangelistic service or whatever to say to explain no, it's not that we're doing that It's, it's that we're like Rose in Doctor Who We've been inspired by someone who thinks we think is better than us and has shown us a more significant way of life and because we love you, we want you to share in that as well. Our motive is not um, being snooty or high and mighty and thinking we're better than you. Our motive is, is, is love and significance and fighting evil. It's also something of a, a way of explaining verses from the Bibles like uh, James 2.26 faith without deeds is dead Um, or Philippians 2.12 continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling you've got to work it out for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes both within Doctor Who and within Christianity it's not that we are just uh, passive recipients of being saved from evil whether outside of or, or within us, by this Messiah figure. Although that element is there, it's also that we are, by that salvation, inspired to become transformed ourselves and become enlisted in a new way of life that is about fighting evil, both within and without us. And similarly, the Doctor. And actually quite a lot of episodes, particularly the first season, the Doctor would turn up in a situation 
and he would have an effect on other people around him that inspired them to be the crucial person who saves the day at the end of the episode. And it was quite often not the doctor who personally resolved the situation, but the people that he had influenced positively who saved the situation. Which I thought was it was quite an interesting new spin on the character that um, writer put in there. So continuing, uh, looking now in a section about the uh, oop, the doctor. My PC doesn't want to work. There it is. Um, this is one thing we did in in the book to show just how many points of analogy there are between the figure of the Doctor and the figure of the Christ, just treating them as as, uh, uh, figures in the literature, as it were. Uh, Let me go through these very briefly. Um, Both are commonly known by their title rather than their name. The Doctor, uh, Christ. Christ is not his name, obviously. It's it's the title, it's the translation from Messiah. Um, Both figures are known by their titles often. Uh, both are unearthly persons with a human form, although the, the Doctor um, has two hearts and will change his body when he dies. Um, but he looks human, uh, which obviously saves on the makeup budget. Uh, both turn up from beyond the world, usually at, at just the right time to make a difference to a, a developing situation. Um, fans have often commented on, on what are the odds that every time the Doctor goes somewhere it seems that something terrible is happening there and he's just the right person to stop it um, he, you know, we never see a story in which he turns up somewhere and it's all peaceful and quiet and they have a nice holiday um, because that wouldn't make for very dramatic television really but um, he turns up and makes a difference and he comes into the world from beyond the world or from a different time and space or even a different universe and he kind of comes into the world um, both are motivated by a strong sense of good and evil. Both have uh, miraculous powers, in some sense, including foreknowledge of the future. Of course, the doctor's always saying things like, "Oh no, I know, I, I, you know, uh, that'll that'll happen," and uh, I, I don't think we can we can interfere here because that that's that's history. That's going to happen. Or well, this we we can change. The show changes its mind a lot through its history about whether you can affect the future by changing the past you know all those paradoxes about if you went back in time and killed your grandfather um, what would happen well could you do that because if your grandfather never lived you'd never exist in order to go back in time in the first place and kill him so does that mean that you can't go back in time or that if you did go back in time you just wouldn't kill your grandfather or that you couldn't kill your grandfather uh, and you line him up in the, the sights of your shotgun and it would, it would mysteriously fail to, fail to fire um, for some sort of logical necessary reason somehow because if you succeed then you couldn't have gone back and so on all sorts of interesting uh, philosophical stuff there you could get into but let's not uh, for knowledge power to heal the sick um, Doctor often displays some sort of uh, healing uh, capacity with people sometimes, and to defeat demons as well. Demons quite frequently crop up in the show, although they're always explained, usually explained as, 
well, it's an alien that looks a bit like a demon, or it's got, oh, it's completely naturalistic, and there's a completely scientific explanation for this demon that is displaying um, telekinetic power and uh, mind reading and uh, all sorts of paranormal powers. But, but don't worry, none of it's supernatural because it all has a scientific explanation. It's just that I, I haven't got time to tell you what it is now. Uh, <laughs> so the show manages to, as English would say, um, have their cake and eat it. Uh, in in a sense, uh, keeper. Yes, we're we're just having a naturalistic worldview here, but include all sorts of w- uh, amazing, miraculous things. Uh, the Doctor's arch enemy, and we'll meet him uh, in a moment, uh, is a fellow Time Lord, uh, a renegade, a bad Time Lord called the Master, um, who is portrayed as a very sort of satanic figure, a bit like Milton's Satan. He's, he's usually sort of very well-dressed and dashing and rather uh, sort of suave and debonair and uh, cultured, but evil, and often has a little goatee uh, beard and uh, goes around in a black TARDIS trying to uh, work all sorts of nefarious plans upon the universe that are far too complicated for their own good. <laughs> and the Doctor uh, defeats him. But they, they go back a long way because like, they're from the same culture and uh, um, maybe they went to school together or uh, not in the same year, but they, they're in the same school, I think, or, and all that. Uh, both have disciples or companions, as they're called in, in Doctor Who, people who travel around with them learning from them, uh, joining in the mission. Uh, Both are viewed with suspicion by those they try to help very often and are accused of crimes they didn't commit. Uh, Typical Doctor Who plot. Doctor Who uh, lands in some situation and says, we better go out and look and have an explore, see where we are, see what's going on. Uh, Oh, look, a dead body. Let's, uh, Let's look and see what happened at that moment. The security guards of the space station will turn up and say, Murderer! We've got you bang to rights! And uh, the doctor's saying, No, no, it wasn't me. It was, it was the, uh, the Zog who did it. Look, you can see the laser burns. And they're saying, Oh, we don't trust you. How did you get on board? You know, and he says, Well, I've got this sort of time machine that's, that's over there. And they say, That's far too small uh, to be a spaceship. And he says, It's bigger on the inside. And they say, This man's loopy. Uh, he, he's, he's mad. Uh, he's just trying to de- deceive us. We better lock him up in the brig. Um, and uh, gradually lose various crew members over the next couple of episodes as the Zog kill them off until they decide, well, maybe this Doctor was onto something and we'll let him out so that he can save the day. Um, as a generalised uh, schema, that often happens. Uh, both are put on trial by their own people on a couple of occasions indeed, and once they had an entire season where they had a, a trial of the Doctor by the Time Lords. Uh, on a couple of occasions he's put on trial by his own people because they have this philosophy that because they have so much power they shouldn't abuse that power and to stop themselves from abusing that power they will not interfere in other cultures or the development of history they won't, they'll just observe they'll just know everything about the universe they'll defend themselves against the Daleks or whoever but they won't interfere 
Well, the Doctor thinks that uh, like, uh, like Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And he thinks that, no, you've got to take a stand and fight against evil. And because of this, this philosophical difference, uh, actually, we gradually learn he uh, is exiled from his own people. He stole the TARDIS that he has. Maybe that's why it doesn't quite work for him. I don't know. And uh, the, uh, the Time Lords and him are often at variance, although occasionally the Time Lords, when they want a bit of dirty work done, that they can, they can say, we had nothing to do with that. It was, it was this renegade Time Lord, the, do the, the, do the Doctor. It was his doing. Um, but secretly, we, we told him to do it and said, if you don't do it, we'll, do <laughs> we'll take away your, uh, your, your TARDIS keys, as it were, um, to force him to do it. Um, both always try to accomplish their goals without using force. The Doctor does not go around with a gun. Occasionally, he has to resort to using a gun that he might have nicked off uh, a dead alien or something, because that's the only way that he can defeat the evil. But he always tries to talk the bad guy out of it first. We saw that scene between uh, the Doctor and Davros, the Dalek creator, where the Doctor is trying to get him to think about the ethical implications of his actions and to convince him not to do it. But if you really push the Doctor, then, um, boy, are you in trouble. But he tries, at least, to solve the problem by talking it out. Um, the Doctor doesn't have a gun, as I say. He goes around with a, 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 a sort of space-age screwdriver. <laughs> that he can uh, open locked doors with and uh, saves time you know, picking the lock in the plot or whatever, do various things that the plot desires with it, but it's not a weapon. It's a, it's a tool, a scientific tool that very much represents him. He tries to fix the problem, but not by using force. But because using force has much more dramatic impact and much more of a sense to us that, oh good, the bad guy's got their just desserts, uh, it usually ends with him having to destroy them in some way. But not always. Sometimes he manages to uh, talk it out, as it were. And uh, certainly with Jesus, you know, he said, I, and my kingdom's not of this world, those who live by the sword will die by it, and so on. I'm, I'm not come to establish a political, worldly power base. That's not what the kingdom is about. Uh, both sacrifice their lives to save others from evil. And the Doctor does this, of course, on numerous occasions, um, sometimes to save individuals or whole cultures or uh, to save the majority. Uh, Jesus, uh, as Christians believe in a, in a once-for-all sacrifice. Um, but out of this death, for both figures, comes new life. As the Doctor uh, transforms into a new body and a slightly new character, what they call regenerating, and as the Christ resurrects into a spiritual body that Paul talks about. When uh, regenerated, stroke resurrected, uh, these figures, uh, even close friends, don't recognise them. Think of the, the road to Emmaus story in which Jesus walks with a couple of people, has a long conversation with them, and they don't recognise him until he makes uh, the characteristic breaking of bread uh, move at the supper. Um, or uh, when the disciples are fishing uh, on the lake and they, they see Jesus on the, on, on the seashore and they're not, they're not quite sure who it is. Similarly with the, the doctor when he resurrects his friends who know him well because they don't recognise him because he has a new body and they're kind of, what have you done with the doctor? So, I am the doctor. He has to convince them quite often that it is, that it is him. 
Um, and after their work is done, both then leave the world, transcend the world by m- miraculous means. I mean, uh, the ascension for Christ. The doctor gets back into his mysterious blue box and it sort of goes see-through and dis- disappears. Ooh. So lots of points of analogy um, between um, the, the, the portrayal of the figures. Um, this uh, is actor Sylvester McCoy who played uh, the seventh uh, incarnation of the Doctor. Uh, he was a trainee priest before he became an actor. Sylvester McCoy. Um, he was uh, the last guy to play him in the 80s. And he said this in a, a one interview about Doctor Who. It's the classic story of someone from outside our world coming down to help us. That makes it very attractive to human beings. I don't mean to be, to be sacrilegious, but Jesus came down from outside the world to save us, and it's that kind of arena. Um, so from one of the actors who played the Doctor, explicitly saying, yeah, the Doctor is a very Christ-like character, and it's a sort of Christ-like story that's being portrayed. So let me show you uh, two clips from a more recent season with David Tennant of the Doctor. Um, a story in which he's fighting against the Master, who, uh, although he thought all Time Lords apart from himself were dead, he discovers that, uh, of course, they're not, and the Master, <laughs> he would be the one, wouldn't he? He is uh, still alive. Here, played by uh, John Sim. And a uh, little bit of background that the Master has captured the Doctor and imprisoned him, and indeed he's uh, aged him incredibly using some uh, sci-fi technology and he's become, the Doctor has become a little bit like a CGI golem figure in a birdcage for part of the story which is very weird because he's incredibly old but he didn't let him regenerate as he got older uh, and uh, the Doctor has taken over the Earth and uh, no sorry the, the Master has taken over the Earth and uh, partly he's done this by using his sort of telepathic powers that he tends to uh, display. This is one of his sort of miraculous powers of the master. He can kind of influence people, sort of mesmerism, uh, hypnotize them into doing his evil deeds for him. Well, this time the master has uh, set up a, a telepathic field around the earth using a whole grid of satellites. And so he's kind of influenced everybody to vote for him in the election and then to make him world leader and to <laughs> give him all this power. Um, but the, uh, the doctor uh, has sent his companion off around the world, a bit like John the Baptist, telling the story of the doctor, uh, fomenting a, a freedom-fighting movement, and telling everybody that everyone around the world at the same time on this particular day must think about the doctor and use the, the telepathic field to, uh, against the master, turn it back on himself in some sort of uh, judo-like move. Um, it's a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the time in uh, British, I don't know if you have the, the pantomime, tradition, uh, Christmas panto, uh, you know, the sort of uh, plays where, uh, for children where uh, grown men dress up as, as, uh, as women and uh, do all sorts of slapstick uh, comedy and we'll have pirates or uh, Aladdin and his lamp or whatever. Um, and there might be one about uh, Peter Pan and fairies and the fairy dies and the audience all have to, you know, clap if you believe in fairies. If we all believe in fairies enough, she'll, Tinkerbell will come back to life and we'll all sort of positively think it's a bit like that. But it's also, uh, and as is explicitly said in the script, uh, the master says, well, th- this is your plan to defeat me, the power of prayer. 
Um, so let me show you uh, this scene and uh, a scene just slightly on from this one of uh, uh, the doctor defeating the master through the, the power of prayer. <laughs> Very interesting. So again, lots of religious parallels and imagery being sort of played upon there. How more Christ-like in glory, in the transfiguration of the doctor. Uh, with this glowing glory around him through the, the power of faith and hope and prayer and then forgiving his arch ne- nemesis, the, the master. Of oh, the course, uh, in the end, uh, he ends up dead because someone else shoots him. You know. So he, we, 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 again, as the audience, we, we, we get our cake and eat it. <laughs> um, but of course, the, the master will be back because he's a, he's a time lord and he always comes back. Um, so both stories here about the Doctor and about Jesus, um, as we've seen, contain moral truths. I would communicate to an audience just on the level of, of treating them both as stories, that they contain moral truths that we can g- agree with, whatever our religious or philosophical backgrounds are, perhaps. Often the very same moral truths as we thought, saw with the Daleks. And both stories obviously do, can and do, inspire people to live a better life, uh, as Rose talked about. Of course, I would want to then say that there is a crucial difference here, in that Christians have the added motivation when it comes to the story of Jesus, that we actually think that it's not just a story that contains truths, but that it is true. The story story about the Doctor is a fictional TV show. The story about Jesus is not a fairy tale. It is uh, truth. It is, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, perhaps myth become reality in space-time history. Uh, But just as C.S. Lewis talked about the way in which some of those parallels between Christianity and pagan myth weren't reasons to doubt Christianity because if, if, if Christianity were, were true and God through his spirit were trying to draw humanity to him and humans are made in the image of God and so on you might expect people to have something of an insight into that uh, overall gospel narrative and to know something about the reality of evil the fact that it's in us, we need to be saved from it we need to stand against it we have this hope and desire within us that it will be defeated uh, we have this, uh, this sort of uh, dying out of death comes new life often in pagan myths and so on but in Christ this, all these truths congeal into history uh, in the time of Pontius Pilate with the historical evidence there to show that this this is a, a myth that actually happened. Uh, it's not just a myth. So, although Doctor Who isn't true, from the perspective of a, a Christian worldview looking at it, it certainly contains many truths, uh, things that we want to affirm in terms of Nick Pollard's uh, process of positive deconstruction. And I think it's always good to start with affirming as much as possible to make as much common ground for conversation as possible. But it does also contain uh, Doctor Who's programme and an underlying scepticism about the supernatural. Um, I've mentioned before the way in which it will often portray things that look like they're supernatural um, but say, no it does, it's not really it, 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 it does have a scientific, fully natural explanation. 
it's just that we can't give it to you now you know so it just assumes a naturalistic worldview and then interprets everything that happens through those spectacles but interestingly enough the show itself has become a little bit more sceptical about its own scepticism in recent years I'm going to show you uh, again a couple of clips from uh, David Tennant's story a uh, two part story in which um, he lands on an asteroid orbiting a black hole the asteroid shouldn't be orbiting a black hole it should be falling into the black hole this is a big mystery it, it turns out that the, the asteroid is a prison for a uh, demonic satanic type creature that claims to be the devil uh, and indeed the, the, the original devil behind all of the different devil-like myths around different religions and cultures and so on and which displays apparent supernatural powers um, telekinesis, mind reading uh, and so on uh, and the doctor's reaction to meeting something that on the face of it at least seems to be genuinely supernatural and says that it, it, it existed from before the beginning of time and there's quite a lot of debate sort of in the doctor's own thinking about his worldview and his assumptions about what can be true and what can't be true and an admission that well he doesn't know everything that's why he travels around to, to find out more about the universe to understand it more and that if he ever gets into the, the realm of thinking well I know everything I, I don't need to ever bother about what the, the evidence says because I already know what all the answers must be that actually that's uh, a way of thinking that the show is now beginning to critique rather than just thinking well I know what the answer must be because I know it has to fit with a naturalistic way of looking at it the show now seems to be saying a bit more well you might have that as a working assumption but at least you've got to be open to changing your mind based on new experiences of reality um, so here we go with a couple of clips uh, from uh, this story Satan Pit uh, the beast seems to have uh, telekinetically cut the cable to the lift that the doctor is standing in uh, and is descending down into the, the pit um, although by um, particularly through its use of monsters although not in, in this instance perhaps but often its use of monsters Doctor Who is portraying the fact that there's evil in humans that needs to be fought it's warning us, demonstrating to us about that the show also has a lot of positive things to say about humanity that little speech she gave there about how great humans were exploring the universe and doing these amazing things it's the sort of speech that quite often crops up it sort of has a very positive humanistic kind of view of people as well as saying sometimes we can be horrible and terrible and just petty and narrow minded and so on um, but there it's sort of very interesting the show's starting to uh, when the devil says, says doctor says you know that's impossible that can't happen the devil says is that your religion and the doctor just says well it's a belief he's becoming a little less a little less sure of himself. Here is the Doctor now having um, fallen down the lift shaft but survived and going down into the, the final uh, pit. So very, I think that's very interesting, the show becoming 
self-critical and perhaps moving to a more agnostic position for the Doctor on the sort of worldview question and certainly calling into, into question having such a firm dogmatic commitment to one view of things that new experiences, new evidence becomes irrelevant to what you think about reality. Uh, I shall say a little bit more about that in a moment, how I might then develop that if I were using this in a talk context. Uh, another thing that just watching that there struck me is you could use that scene as an illustration of Pascal's wager. Um, do you know about Pascal's uh, wager argument? Um, it's not an argument for the existence of God, but an argument for um, it being good to believe in God, or at least being very important to explore the question and to seek after God, if there is one. Um, for someone, it's an argument that Pascal, who was a French mathematician and philosopher, aimed at people who were agnostic. People who said, well, I think there's, there's sort of a balance of evidence, and I can't make up my mind whether or not there's a God on the basis of the evidence, because it just seems to be equally balanced for and against. Um, well, what do you do in that situation? Uh, do you, as, as Somerset Maugham uh, said, uh, I'm ag agnostic and the practical result is I live as if there is no God? Well, why isn't the practical result that I'm an agnostic and so I live as if, as if there is a God? Why do you go one way rather than another? And Pascal gave an argument to at least try and convince people to keep thinking, keep seeking after God, because that was a very important. He did it in terms of, um, suppose um, there isn't a God and you don't believe in God, what are the practical results? Suppose there isn't a God and you do believe in God. Well, you have a false belief, but you get a, 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 a feeling of, of meaningful life and purpose and so on, and a moral system, and um, if, if you're just going to die when you, when you die and that's it anyway, you know, what's too, too tragic about that? But suppose there is a God and you don't believe in him. Maybe this has serious consequences here and in the hereafter. And suppose there is a God and you do believe in him. Well, that's great. And so by looking at these kind of combinations, Pascal argued that, that practically speaking, the sensible man, as it were, ought to, to bet on thinking that maybe there was a God, or at least bet on thinking, well, I'm going to act as if there was one and try and try and engage in life in such a way that I'd be open to discovering evidence that convinced me that there was one, or having experiences through which I could become convinced that there is a God. So Pascal said that an agnostic should, for example, go to church with other people. Not, not believing, not living a lie, but remaining open to finding God, rather than saying, as Somerset Maugham did, well, I'm an agnostic, I don't know, and therefore I'm just going to forget about the whole thing and pretend as if there isn't a God and live my life that way. Pascal was saying, no, it's much more sensible to go in the, the other direction. Well, here is the doctor, the end of his rope, the end of his tether, as we say in English. And he's saying, well, it could be miles to go, or it could be 30 feet. I don't know. I can't make up my mind on the evidence. But what happens if I just stay here or, or go back the way I came? I'm going to run out of oxygen and I'm going to be dead. It's not looking positive. Well, if I drop and it's too far, I'll die, but I'm going to die anyway. But what if it is only 30 feet? What if there is a bottom to reality that I'll make contact with that will mean that I will survive? 
isn't it worth taking the risk of dropping so, uh, I think that's a very good illustration of that kind of pragmatic argument uh, for acting in a certain way towards God but, uh, but here um, let's also spin this out into, into this questioning of, of, of um, the role of, of your um, philosophical world view versus the importance of looking at new experiences and new evidence in making your mind up about things um, this is Christian philosopher R. Douglas Givet. Um in brackets up here um, I'm not going to go into I'll show you the equation but there's a, a, a probability calculus a way of uh, mathematically calculating how the arrival of new information um, affects the uh, the probabilities associated with believing in particular uh, theories. It's used by philosophers and some scientists in evaluating competing theories. But this little, in brackets up here, it just means that the, the probability of, um, say, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The probability of Jesus being resurrected, R, is um, the probability of Jesus being resurrected just given our background beliefs about reality so particularly things like whether or not we already think that there's some kind of a god who could work miracles say and uh, what the best explanation of the particular historical evidence that we can find the evidence e so when we're asking you know do i believe in the resurrection it's not just a matter of looking at the historical evidence and saying what's the best explanation of it because the, for example, the, the explanations that we'll even consider, allow ourselves to consider, put on the table as possibilities, will be affected by our background philosophical beliefs. If we believe, we think very strongly, that there is no God, or that there can't be miracles, or that you could never have enough evidence to make it reasonable to believe in a miracle, as, as David Hume, a sceptical Scottish philosopher, thought then we wouldn't be very well disposed towards spending a lot of time looking at the historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Because we would know in advance, beforehand, that that's a completely useless exercise. It's not going to change our minds, so why do it? On the other hand, if we were agnostic, we thought miracles were possible, if we thought there was a God, or that uh, we thought there was God with a particular character, that gave some plausibility to the idea that maybe God would want to be in contact with humans, then we become much more positive towards arguments about the best explanation of the historical evidence being that God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, if you want to del delve into this, this, particularly with the whole Bayes theorem stuff, uh, British philosopher Richard Swinburne has written an excellent book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, in which he very carefully goes through the background philosophical beliefs that impinge and then the historical data and the best explanation and puts it all in this probability terms but for our purposes this quote from Givet has quite got a good explanation he says events are made more or less likely to us not only by, by circumstantial evidence the historical evidence say uh, susceptible of historical analysis but also the metaphysical the philosophical possibilities that fall outside the, the province of historical investigation so he's saying it's not enough just to make up your mind on the basis of history because you can't do history without 
in, in a vacuum, as it were. Everybody will have some philosophical beliefs that will affect how they do the history. And it's good to get people to recognise that fact uh, and to be able to, to say things like, well, okay, I can see, I don't believe in God, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead, but I can see that if someone thought there was a God, they'd be quite rational to think that there was enough evidence to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, uh, British atheist philosopher called Anthony Flew said something very much like that. He for, he for a long time was a very famous atheist philosopher. Um, a few years ago, he changed his mind very publicly and became a, a, a minimal kind of theist. He says he now thinks there is enough evidence to believe in God. His, his objection was always there isn't enough evidence. And he now thinks that the arguments for God have got stronger particularly through recent scientific discoveries, and he's declared publicly he now believes in God. But he, he's not become a Christian or saying that any particular religious tradition is true. But he does say, well, now I think that there's a God, I can't rule out miracles, and it's become much more plausible to me to think that Christianity might be true. He says Christianity is the religion to beat as it were. It's the leading contender for being a true revelation from God. So Anthony Flew's moved a long way um, from the days uh, when he was um, at the Socratic Club in Oxford with C.S. Lewis arguing as an atheist. Um, so this uh, background knowledge, the particular evidence, our hypotheses, and there's this relationship uh, between them. So uh, this is um, an agnostic New Testament scholar called Bart Ehrman you may have heard of um, and in a debate uh, on the resurrection with uh, William Lane Craig which you can find this debate on William Lane Craig's website Reasonable Faith it's a good place to go um, Bart Ehrman made this point hey, the, the reason that the resurrection makes sense to Bill Bill Craig is because he's a believer in God that's Bill's background belief and so of course God can act in the world why not well that presupposes a belief in God says Ehrman and Ehrman doesn't share that belief and that's why he's saying he doesn't share the belief in the resurrection it doesn't convince him well actually it doesn't really presuppose a belief in God so much as it presupposes either a belief in God or agnosticism because the agnostic can't say well miracles can't happen because there isn't a God they can only say well maybe they can happen if there is a God and maybe there is a God so maybe miracles can happen. I'll have to go and look at the evidence to see whether one has happened. And if one has happened, then I'll come and believe that there's a God. You know. So we can say, uh, using the Latin, et, et tu, you, you too, Bart Ehrman. We can turn this back on him. The reason that Bart Ehrman uh, doesn't believe in the resurrection, you know, it doesn't make sense to him, is because he's an atheist, actually, or he presupposes that you can't believe in miracles or something like this. Uh, well, that presupposes those philosophical beliefs, and we could question and debate about those philosophical beliefs once we've un unearthed them. But I think it's just interesting to see that the Doctor Who, which is a program that's had a long history of, of you know, supporting a sort of humanistic, naturalistic worldview of explaining everything in terms of science, even if it's science that we don't know about yet, because they can just make it up in a fictional program and therefore have things that look experientially like a miracle. We can say, oh, it must be scientific. The way in which some naturalists will say, 
you, you, there's no reason to believe in God or religion or miracles because science can explain everything. You'll often hear this or read this in writings. Well, they don't literally mean it that way, and I've seen atheist professors say that science can explain everything because it's very easy to come up with a list of things that science cannot explain, doesn't explain yet. And scientists saying things like, well, we don't have an explanation for consciousness, the origin of life, um, the origin of the universe, why something rather than, than nothing exists. <laughs> Big list. What they really mean is, I have faith that science, I, I naturalistically interpreted scientific explanation, is the true one, and that one day maybe we will find it. So I'm not going to believe that that's a, a, a miracle, even if I've had that experience myself, because I know that it must have a scientific, and in inverted commas, explanation. But all that is really is an expression of faith that naturalism is true. Uh, and saying, I'm going to be committed to that faith in naturalism rather than um, being particularly interested in, in shaping my beliefs by looking at the evidence which is a strange thing for particularly scientific atheists to say, because you would think scientists are people who are particularly interested in shaping their beliefs by looking at the evidence, um, rather than just trying to figure out everything out in terms of philosophy, which is what the ancient Greeks did. You know, that was ancient Greeks sitting in their armchairs, if they had any, saying things like, oh, the planets must go in perfect circles, mustn't they? It only stands to reason. Well, you know, it was Christians who later on said, well, hang on a minute, we believe that God created the universe and he's got free will and so he could have done it any way that he liked. So how can we find out what way things really are? We'll have to go and look. We'll have to go and experiment. We can't just sit in our armchairs and say, well, God has to do it this way all the time. And that's why science, as we now understand it, arose within the Christian theistic context just after the medieval period from Christians who had that belief that you, you've got to go and look to find out what God did. And also, of course, the belief that people are made in God's image and God is a rational God who made the world out there and made us, made the way we think in here. And so we've got some reason to expect the way we think about things and the way the world works to fit together. Some reason to expect that we can cram some of the way things are out there into the way things are in here. Some reason, as, as some have said, to believe that there are, are laws of nature that we could discover because nature has a lawgiver, a rational gi giver of laws of nature behind it, which is not a belief you have if you've got a, a polytheistic worldview, for example, where there are different gods associated with different aspects of reality and those gods are sort of, um, do you know the term capricious? They, they just might change their mind at a moment's notice just to play a trick on you because that's what the gods are like we're just their playthings and uh, better not poke your nose into the realm of Poseidon and do too much you know, uh, studying beneath the waves because that might make him angry or if you're a pantheist and you think nature is God and you know, the frog is just as much God as I am, you might be a bit reticent about I don't know, cutting up the frog to have a look how it works because you're sort of interfering in God by doing that. And so historians of science will often talk about the way in which the Christian worldview shaped the birth of, of a scientific attitude to things. Um, so there's all sorts of those 
conversations that you can then spin off uh, from looking at uh, scenes in Doctor Who. If you've got an audience that's particularly interested in that, uh, the, the, the difficult bit with this as ever is, is finding the right bit of culture for the audience that you want to communicate with. Um, I mean, I've forced you to sit through clips from a sci-fi show today because that's what I'm using as my example and that's what I like. This obviously is something that I've done and works well with a group of Doctor Who fans at a Doctor Who convention. Um, probably not going to work as well with a group of people who've never seen the show or just aren't interested in sci-fi and they really like um, football and soap operas or whatever. Um, so for those audience, you need to find the football clips and the soap opera clips <laughs> that you can work off. But that is, I will admit, harder. Sci-fi is uh, a genre, whether it's written or visual, that very explicitly often deals with big ideas and moral questions and so on, because it's that, it's that genre where writers get to say, what if? What if we had this situation? What would be the results? What would that mean for humanity? How can we uh, critique our contemporary situation by setting up a story that's kind of one step removed from where we really are and say, oh, I'm just telling a story. But really that story carries a, a hard-hitting message that's criticising the way that our culture is now. And you can see some of that uh, going on occasionally in, in Doctor Who, although it's not a particularly um, sort of politically engaged programme, although it's a little more these days than it used to be, and so on. But there again, I, I hope you see that the general uh, approach of following Paul in, in getting a, an understanding of something that connects with your audience... Uh, of affirming as much as possible the things that you can agree with and have common ground with people on, um, but making very clear lines of where there are differences, and saying, you know, the Christian story is not just a myth, not just a, a useful story that's inspiring or, or makes us feel nice, it's something that's actually true, and even ways in which you can begin to use that story itself, their, their interest, their worldview, to illustrate how it's important to pursue truth, that kind of Pascal's wager thing, or how it's important not to be so dogmatic in our beliefs that new experiences and evidence don't matter to us. And of course, if you're saying that to an audience, you yourself have to be prepared to model that. You yourself have to be prepared to say, well, I'm, I'm really convinced that Christianity is true, I think there's lots of evidence for it, lots of reason, I think it's rational, I think the objections don't work, and so on. But if you've got an objection, I'm going to carefully listen to it and consider it. Because together we need to both be interested in truth. And actually, my worldview, my Christ, commands me to worship God with my mind and to pursue the truth, to test everything, hold on to the good, as Paul says, and so on. And so I would be... Um, be being hypocritical about my own beliefs if if I became so dogmatic in those beliefs that I became like the naturalist who says well you know science will explain everything in the end I've got faith in that don't you know I'm not going to look at the evidence you know that's annoying to us when we meet it it sure of heck will be annoying to atheists if they meet that from us um, so we should uh, we should practice what we preach as the message goes. And we've finished. Oh, very good. <laughs> Staffing on time. Good for the uh, 101 people as well to see you, to see if you are still alive.